It's been two months and a day since Hamas fighters broke through the fence, escaped Gaza and attacked Israel. 1,200 people were killed and hundreds more were taken hostage. The attack shook Israel to its core and shattered any sense of security. The impact of the attack is still reverberating in Israeli society today. In the instant after the attack, Israel responded with an unceasing wave of airstrikes and bombardments, which continue to this day. This week, how is Israel progressing in Gaza? Will they achieve their objectives? Is the manner of Israel's assault still supported by the Israeli public? And how much longer can Prime Minister Netanyahu survive? My name is Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to the New Arab Voice. After a seven-day pause, Israel resumed its assault on Gaza on December 1st, picking up just where they left off. That means more airstrikes on civilian areas and civilian infrastructure. To date, at least 17,177 Palestinians have been killed, of which at least 6,000 are children. Such is the level of violence UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez announced this week that he would invoke Article 99 of the UN Charter, a powerful diplomatic tool that allows the Secretary General to, quote, bring to the attention of the Security Council any matter which, in his opinion, may threaten the maintenance of international peace and security, according to the UN Charter. Article 99 has only been invoked three times during the history of the UN. First in 1969 during the conflict in the Congo, again in 1979 during the hostage crisis in Iran, and for a third time in 1989 to call for a ceasefire of Lebanon's civil war. In a statement to reporters, a spokesperson for the UN Secretary General said, In the letter which has been shared with you, the Secretary General urges the members of the Security Council to press to avert a humanitarian catastrophe, and he appeals for a humanitarian ceasefire to be declared. As the UN Secretary-General reiterated his calls for a ceasefire on the ground, Israeli soldiers pushed deeper into Gaza, reaching the southern city of Khan Yunis and the place where many residents of Gaza City had fled to. So what Israel has done in terms of its ground offensive in Gaza is that it has started off by essentially trying to cut the Gaza Strip in half. And initially it focused on the northern part of Gaza. Uh, by now, Israel's ground forces have essentially more or less established control over the entire northern part of the Gaza Strip and are now beginning to move south towards Khan Yunus and perhaps eventually Rafa. This is Tobias Bork, the Senior Research Fellow for Middle East Studies at the Royal United Services Institute. While Israel is certainly moving through Gaza, leaving a devastating trail in its wake, assessing whether it's meeting its stated military aims is more difficult. You know, the political objective that Israel has given out is to destroy Hamas, right? 
Now, more practically expressed, that probably means trying to ensure that Hamas is no longer able to control Gaza. Trying to translate that into military objectives, then, it would mean essentially destroying any form of military infrastructure and weapons that Hamas has, as well as to well kill or capture Hamas leaders and fighters. And so this is where it gets really difficult to assess, because uh, Hamas, of course, is not a sort of regular army that has very regular sort of military bases and uh, headquarters and so on, and all its fighters are not wearing uniforms and that sort of stuff. So establishing to what extent Israel has actually been able to, you know, destroy military infrastructure, kill or capture Hamas fighters is quite difficult to assess, certainly from the outside. The tragically high civilian death toll has been well documented and widely reported. The military death toll has received less coverage. In terms of casualties or fatalities, Israel has announced that as of today, and we're recording on the 6th of December, Israel has lost 83 soldiers in Gaza. And there were, of course, more than 300 uh, soldiers died on the 7th of October, but 83 since uh, the operations began, so basically since the 8th of October. Regular listeners may recall one of our previous episodes where we spoke about Hamas's military capabilities. In that episode, we talked about how Israel could face a difficult fight against a fairly sizable force in an urban environment that has been prepared by Hamas with an intricate network of tunnels that would aid it in ambush attacks. So far, a grinding and bloody offensive for the Israeli army has not developed. There have been losses, but they could have been much higher. But it's also not over. And this is this is also where it becomes quite difficult. We, we don't quite know where we are in terms of the sort of timeline of these operations, right? Are we halfway through? Who knows? Have we seen the sort of heaviest fighting yet? We don't know. So, yeah, for the moment, uh, those are the numbers. But I'm not so sure how helpful those numbers really are in terms of assessing of whether, at least from the Israeli perspective, it is going well or not. If Israel continues with its current strategy of massive and generally indiscriminate airstrikes and ground forces clearing what remains, then they look set for a military win, albeit a win that will cost the lives of tens of thousands of innocent civilians. However, Israel was also warned this week by US Secretary of Defence Lloyd Austin that they were risking a strategic defeat. You see, in this kind of a fight... The center of gravity is the civilian population. And if you drive them into the arms of the enemy, you replace a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. So I have repeatedly made clear to Israel's leaders that protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral responsibility and a strategic imperative. Israel may, of course, achieve some form of victory in Gaza, or at least what it perceives to be victory. In fact, I'm afraid that this war will only end once Israel feels like it is able to declare some form of victory. However, looking at that bigger picture mentioned by Austin, 
I think the longer this war takes, the more Israeli-Palestinian relations, Israeli-Arab relations get set back, right? The Jordanian foreign minister, Safadi, said as much. He said that, you know, Israel had essentially, or that the war had essentially destroyed, you know, 30 years of work on the relationship, certainly between Israel and Jordan. In addition to the political damage caused by Israel's invasion of Gaza, there is also a real risk that the humanitarian disaster, also caused by the assault, will serve as fuel for radicalization in the future. Whether that is amongst Palestinians or others, it certainly provides fuel to the narratives of extremist organizations across the region. So I think that that is what what Austin was talking about. I think he probably had in mind, and of course this is something that we've heard from from US officials, including President Biden, from the beginning of this conflict, the US experience of the beginning of this century, right? The way that the United States responded to 9-11 and the way the war on terror had so many unintended consequences that we're ultimately still dealing with today. The Israeli invasion of Gaza is, of course, a disaster for the Palestinians who live in the besieged enclave. But what about for Israelis? Two months on, how do they feel about the war in Gaza? Generally, there is an agreement within the Israeli society in support of the war, in support of the war objectives mostly, or there were three war objectives defined by the Israeli leadership, being ensuring that Hamas will not continue to govern Gaza, ensuring that Hamas could not pose any future military threats to Israel from Gaza, and the release of the Israeli hostages held by Hamas. This is Dr. Nimrod Goran, a senior fellow for Israeli Affairs at the Middle East Institute. So these three objectives, I think, are supported across the board, even as we are two months in. People generally support the idea that the IDF can actually implement those. There may be some debates on what's the best mode of action and what should be a priority among them. But overall, I think the support is quite stable. Following the shock of the attack on Israel, and the horror stories that emerged from that fateful day. And Israeli public being generally supportive of the aims of the military action in Gaza is perhaps understandable. No one should have to worry about being violently attacked in their homes. But what about the manner in which Israel is conducting the military assault? I think generally speaking, Israelis do not see an alternative. So, you know, some care about Palestinian casualties and uh, share the soul. Some in our society are less attentive to that or even are less aware because the, the images that are coming through our media are focusing on the Israeli side, naturally. But uh, generally speaking, when Israelis think about how these war objectives could be met, uh, currently they don't see any alternative. And uh, even when we hear leaders in the West supporting the Israeli war objectives but criticizing Israel's actions, it's not as if other modalities of achieving those objectives are being introduced to the public. So the public discourse is basically limited on what is happening now. It's almost the only option Israel has to achieve the objectives that it set for itself. A general level of support for the war among Israelis looks set to continue, or at least until all the hostages are freed and perhaps also Hamas removed from office. A poll conducted by the Israel Democracy Institute suggested that 57.5% of Israeli Jews believe that the Israeli army were using too little 
firepower in Gaza. 36.6% thought that the correct amount of firepower was being used, and just 1.8% thought that too much firepower was being used. While support for the war continues in Israel, support for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is at an all-time low. After such a big failure, um, Netanyahu should, should, should go, basically. That's kind of the mindset in the Israeli public. It's reflected by a constant uh, public opinion polls conducted since the beginning of the war. A poll conducted by the Israeli Voice Index suggested that 61.4% of all Israelis judged Netanyahu's performance negatively. In a separate poll conducted by the Peace Index, also an Israeli company, respondents were even more negative, with 75.8% of Israelis judging Netanyahu's performance to be either not so good or poor in regards to the war. Netanyahu is held responsible you know, for failures of his policies in the years leading up to the war on around uh, October 7th and what happened in the immediate days before and the intelligence failure and the way he's conducting himself after the war and kind of this political survival mode that uh, I mentioned before and you also echoed it in your question. So Netanyahu is trying to do his political survival efforts but by doing those, those efforts he quite reinforces this, this notion within the society this should not be the focus of his actions at the moment. You know, most of the military leaders uh, already took some responsibility upon themselves in Israel and reflected the chance that they may be, in fact, resigning after the war is over. Netanyahu has yet to do anything of the sort. So I think the Israeli public wants to see leadership change. It doesn't mean that there is an ideological shift within Israel to other parties or other spectrums within the political map. But definitely, personally, there is a wish to see people taking responsibility for the immense failure and the amazing losses that Israel suffered in October 7th and afterwards. If we take it as a given that Netanyahu will go, and nothing short of a miracle will likely save him now, then it is Benny Gantz who is the heir apparent. Benny Gantz heads up the centrist National Unity Party, has previously served as Chief of General Staff for the Israeli Army, and held a number of ministerial roles, including justice and defence, and previously challenged Netanyahu in recent elections. And in terms of, uh, of the seats each party is projected to get, Benny Gantz's party is, uh, is much higher than all the others, and much higher than it, it had until now. So it's not clear whether that will stick. Uh, definitely there will be other actors who will try to emerge. Uh, there is a kind of a paradox, because Benny Gantz is leading a centrist party, well, public attitudes in Israel are, are definitely to the right, not to the far right, but to the right wing. So whether this paradox sticks, we'll have to see. I'm quite um, uh, assuming that actors like Naftali Bennett, maybe Gidon Saar, will also try to play into this space between the dissatisfaction with Netanyahu, but the commitment to right wing values, and may carve themselves a space for a, a political emergence. Polling data suggested that an election held today would give Benny Gantz's party 43 seats in the Israeli Knesset, a big jump from the 12 they currently have, while Netanyahu's Likud party would drop to just 18 seats, down from the 32 it won at the last election at the end of 2022. But with no elections due for a while, there is a question of how Netanyahu goes, and whether he goes quietly. Um, I don't think so. It's not, it's not as if he's going to resign the day after. 
there's all kind of political scenarios on how political change could happen in Israel. Basically, there is a chance of Netanyahu dissolving the Knesset and going for early elections, assuming that will help him politically. There is also a chance of people from his own party trying to create a different coalition within the current parliament, with a different prime minister, without necessary elections. And there is an option of the coalition being toppled uh, once the emergency cabinet is, is out. So I think it's not quite clear how this will evolve politically. Uh, the overall sense in Israel is it's not the time to do these big political moves once our soldiers are still fighting and once everything is still um, under evolution and people are still mourning and processing. But eventually there will be a political moment and it will lead to some changes and reconfiguration in our system. Also within the parties, you may see new alliances emerge, new people enter politics. So I think there will be a transformation, not clear yet at what pace and what will be the exact scenario in which it happens. Whether it be Netanyahu or Prince-in-waiting Benny Gantz, they will have to deal with foreign powers, particularly the US and the EU, and particularly if they want to continue getting deliveries of arms. But as we heard earlier from U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, the U.S. is slowly becoming less comfortable with the idea of vast civilian casualties. I think there's concern about the window uh, that may be closing. There are some indications coming from Washington about how long may the U.S. administration want Israel to continue the high-intensity fighting. And we also know that the uh, the U.S. elections will be drawing near and um, making an impact on domestic discourses, but it seems like there's an understanding that what happens on October 7th is a game changer in terms of the region, and there is a need to reshape regional realities. And the question is, are there other modalities of changing those uh, uh, through moving from high-intensity fighting in Gaza to lower-intensity ones? So when do we move from the fighting stage to the transition stage towards better engagement between the sides? I think that's where those in Europe and in the U.S. that want to see a shift in the dynamics on the ground from more fighting to less fighting, we need to become more involved in trying to create those international mechanisms and coordination that will be vital in order for the day in which Hamas will no longer govern Gaza. The day when Hamas will no longer govern Gaza appears to be of far greater concern to the U.S., perhaps even more than the catastrophic civilian death toll. When Israel first launched its offensive against Gaza, the US did question what was Israel's post-conflict plan. The answer was that they didn't really have one. But things are changing slowly. I think it's beginning. It's quite early stages. And you know, the reason for that is that it was a big surprise. Nobody in Israel expected what happened. And there was no, it wasn't an Israel initiated. It's not as if Israel launched the war out of the blue. Israel was responding to a situation that it didn't anticipate and it was totally uh, astonished by uh, experiencing. So it takes time for the system to begin to reflect on how do you, what is your exit strategy because uh, the current reality is still evolving. So there was no big plans on that. So that's one issue. Uh, there was American pressure on Israel to, to step up its thinking on that. And I think that's true for Israel, it's true for other countries in the region. I think the Arab countries are reflecting on what their policy could be what their contribution could be. The Americans, the Europeans are engaging in similar discussions. So I think different actors in the international system are now beginning to do more of this type of policy planning. Uh, the problem in Israel is that the ones who are now responsible for thinking about the day after may not be the one that will be actually implemented. So if Netanyahu is thinking about his day after scenario and he 
we know is not supporting of the two-state solution. He doesn't necessarily want to see a revitalized Palestinian authority take over uh, the Gaza Strip. That's not in line with position of the Israeli center and other political parties in Israel that do want to see uh, how this uh, dire situation could lead to new opportunities for better engagement with the Palestinians, for some progress towards peace, for more security and stability, for a Palestinian authority that is more capable, legitimate, moderate, and can take control of Gaza and stop the Palestinian divide. So there are different and parallel policy planning processes uh, happening in Israel, um, and their effectiveness will be dependent on when will be more clarity on the future of our political system. Amid so much death and tragedy on both sides, there has been an attempt to try and find something good out of this. In the days after the deadly Hamas attack, some believed that this might be a chance for Israeli society and Israeli lawmakers to see that their management of the Palestinians and the issue of Palestine was not working. The Israeli public is re-evaluating and reassessing a previous concept, but has yet to shape the new ones. So I think much of the failures attributed to Netanyahu is not only on specific what happened around October 7th, is his policies before. What Netanyahu basically was leading in the, in the years, um, in, the, in the last few years, was a, a, an assumption that the Palestinian issue could be sidelined, that the status quo could be maintained, that the division between the West Bank and Gaza works to Israel's favor, uh, that empowering Hamas in a way can contribute to Israel's interests. And all of those concepts uh, failed big time around October 7, and nobody believed that they work anymore. Uh, now, what is the alternative to that? There's still a debate, and I think the Israeli public is still confused about it. You know, some people are definitely going more to the right and saying Israel should control uh, security-wise the territory to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Uh, others will say the opposite, that it shows a need for negotiations for, for progress, the need to link normalization with Arab states to progress towards the two-state solution. So there's still kind of um, an open ground for new ideas now. Uh, it's not only in Israel, we see that in Brussels, we see that in Washington. Uh, there is new thinking and that's a very good opportunity because for many years in the Israeli society, everyone had a solution. It was very clear to almost each of the citizens what should be done, what is the solution. And now there are new question marks. And when a time of question marks emerge together with potential political transformation, it's really a time for rethinking and maybe steering things in a better direction than uh, traditionally would have been happening without it. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.